It's interesting sometimes when I come and sit here at the front and whether here or in various other places. It's a it's really an honor and a privilege to have the opportunity to share the Dharma, the journey with so many good hearts, people such as yourselves. When I come, it's often something that moves me to just take a moment to express my appreciation and respect for the Buddha, represented by the... uh, The image we have here, Buddha Rupa, it's called. Rupa meaning form. A form of the Buddha represents something for us. Certainly for me. A human being as he was. Not so different than themselves, than ourselves. So I was uh, reflecting with someone today how there were times when he was confused and maybe did things he might have later regretted and yet he lived a remarkable life nonetheless and our lives, certainly mine, have been profoundly touched by his life. And in a similar way, our lives touch the lives of many around us. And this touching that takes place, the way we are touched, we affect ourselves, each other, our world. This This is something I think we can reflect upon. It speaks of or it points to something very fundamental. That we're perhaps interested to understand more fully, more deeply. We are affected and we affect this world. And I remember when I was young, as I started to kind of get a bit more of a sense of the world and what was going on in my, I guess, teenage years, I began to become quite deeply distressed by what seemed to be going on in the world. As a young adult, I really couldn't understand how it could be that so much of human activity could cause harm to others, to the world, to the environment, to creatures, to communities. I couldn't understand how that could be so, given that the harm being caused seemed so apparent. And 
if it was apparent, how could it be so that human beings would still do these things? I couldn't understand that. It made no sense to me. And equally and in some ways even more painfully, I struggled with the fact that I realised that in my own wish to do something about that or to respond at times to the suffering in the world or in nearby communities and immediate situations, I was also somehow limited or impeded in myself and being able to respond as I would wish to. I remember having the sense I want to go somewhere where I can help people and yet actually not quite able to take the step that that would have involved because of feeling, well, I need to get my life together. I need to make sure I'm going to be okay. And yet somehow not being quite at ease with that. And along the way, I despite misgivings, went through university and uh, began a professional career, which I survived for about 18 months before I left, um, to the great disappointment of my grandmother, who had, I think, probably been very happy to have a lawyer for a son, a grandson. Um, But it certainly wasn't something that was making me happy. And it certainly didn't seem to be producing happiness for the people around me in the, in the profession that I was in. And so I decided I needed to look for something different. I didn't know what that might be. And I began by spending some time travelling around the country that I'd grown up in, New Zealand. Though I wasn't born there, I'd lived there since a baby. And I had a sense that probably I was going to leave, but I didn't know to where, and I didn't imagine I would necessarily come back. Many of my friends at the time were sort of going off on what in New Zealand you call an OE, going for an overseas experience. And in New Zealand, you've probably never gone overseas until you're old enough and have earned some money to go for some length of time, because it's really not worth going anywhere unless you've got months, if not years, to do it when it's that far away. But there was the sense of something calling to me, and yet at the same time a considerable degree of fear about how to engage with that calling. And so at one point I was cycling around the South Island of New Zealand, which is, I guess, half the size of the UK, and uh, spent some time doing things that I loved and in a way saying farewell to the country, imagining or believing and thinking I was intending to leave, which turned out to be true. And along the way I had a very powerful and important encounter for me with someone. It's a very interesting thing when one is cycle touring, riding a bicycle through the, the countryside with large bags full of tents and sleeping bags and food and all the equipment one needs to be independent and the outdoors. Um, And there's a certain sort of 
mutual sort of fondness amongst other cyclists, realising that this is actually something really painful and difficult and possibly a little bit stupid to be doing, although at the same time rather lovely. So it's not unusual when encountering another cycle tourist to stop and say hello or greet each other in some way. And yet I had had have many sort of just fleeting encounters of that kind in my in my time of several months travelling in this way. But on one occasion I was just going down this road in quite remote area of this sort of lower part of the South Island of New Zealand that's quite beautiful and uh, there's not many people living there. And there was a cyclist coming up in the opposite direction and just somehow we just looked at each other and you know that sort of greeting, smile, and we just stopped and paused and somehow a conversation opened up. And we just exchanging a little sort of personal information as one does when travelling in that way. It suddenly became, well, quite soon became apparent that uh, I'd been in the same class at school with her sister, who was 20 years younger than her. She was a little older than most cycle tourists. And we just started talking, having just that little bit in common. Her father, in fact, had been the school counsellor at my school. I had uh, no idea what a school counsellor did when I was at school. Uh, now I think, gosh, I probably should have talked to him. But uh, <laughs> It was a completely an alternative world to the world I grew up in. What would a counsellor be in my world? I had no idea. And it was really interesting because she somehow saw me in a way that probably I hadn't been seen before. Or at least not by someone who could tell me what they saw. And she gave me something that was an immense gift. That just made sense of something in my life, which I'll share in a, a moment or two. And it was a very interesting meeting, because it just somehow organically we started talking, and we started touching on areas of, first of all, shared connection and history from, as I said, my school and her father's role and her sister being in my class. I didn't know her that well, but uh, we were friends. And then it sort of there was a point where she looked at me and said, you know, not everyone sees as much. And it somehow struck me. And she continued just to share and reflect a little bit. She was obviously someone, I didn't have the language then, who had a a deep sense of spirituality and exploration in her life. I don't think I'd met anyone like that before. Certainly not had a conversation with them. And what she said to me was that, actually, you know, the way it is, this is paraphrasing her, It happens like this because mostly people can't see what's really happening. Mostly we ourselves don't see at all. But some, and many in fact, see so little that it's shocking. And in that kind of, she introduced me to the concept and the language of awareness and the degree to which we may or may not really have access to that and the degree of variance in the world. 
of that. And it somehow helped me to understand that what took place in the world was born of blindness. So much of what takes place in this world is born of blindness. It's something the Buddha spoke about. He spoke about blindness. The word he used was avidya, sometimes translated as ignorance. But I think that's a rather unfortunate and somewhat pejorative translation. The word avidya actually comes from in the sort of Indo-European language family, as I understand it, they're a similar group. So the, the root vid in avidya is a similar, the way we use vid, that has to do with, or well, as in vision or video, something to do with seeing. And not seeing is essentially vidya seeing avidya, not seeing, a negates it. Something about understanding that what happens is because of blindness really helped me both to understand that if I saw, that didn't mean that everyone else saw what I saw. And therefore, oh, that's how it happens the way it happens. I think we find ourselves in a place like this because for many of us at least, we we perhaps see in a way that not everyone around us sees. And we wonder, how can it be that the world is the way it is? That people do what they do? I don't know if that's your experience, but for me, having a sense that I wasn't the only one for whom it appeared that way was incredibly important. And what was rather interesting and lovely in this, we talked for hours, was that uh, Sarah, as her name was, to whom someone to whom I'm eternally grateful, really my first spiritual teacher, she would really like and wanted to sleep out under the stars. And the, uh, In New Zealand, in that area, there's no light sources, there's no cities, there's no towns, there's no people for miles and miles and miles and miles and miles. So the open night sky is just gorgeous. But it's also a bit scary because there's no people. If... That's someone one's used to, and as a, a woman travelling on her own, she was understandably cautious, but because we'd made friends on the side of the road, as we did, we slept, you know, we put our camping things and camping things, and rather than putting our tents up and getting into them, we just slept, as I often would do, under the stars. And somehow I received this incredibly precious thing from her in the meeting, of this teaching and this kind of pointing and aligning, my life, and she got to feel okay to sleep out without her tent. And there was some kind of a mutuality in that, and a just kind of a blessed encounter that I sometimes find myself reflecting on in this situation. Because we're here, engaged in the journey of beginning to see more clearly, more deeply, to deepen our capacity our connection with this awareness, this journey of clarifying the seeing capacity of our hearts. And it's not an easy thing to undertake. In so many ways, and we've spoken about that in a range of 
different aspects. There's some I'd like to touch on. Just kind of stand out for me at the moment and some of the conversations we've been having. Reflections I've been having. One of the things that's hardest is when we can see ourselves do what we do. Just as when I would see other people doing and thinking, my gosh, how can they do that? As we start to reflect and look more carefully and honestly at ourselves, we start to think, oh my gosh, look what I'm doing. It's not just happening out there. Look what I'm doing. Look at the ways in which I'm expressing forms of reactivity or harmful behavior or unskillful things. Ways in which I'm caught in patterns of need and greed or of anger and perhaps sometimes harmful things that we might feel regret and remorse for. As we begin to see more clearly, one of the things we're asked, required, in fact, to do is to sit in the presence of our own blindness playing itself out. To actually see and feel what happens in those places where we're carried and compelled. But not yet, and though we can see that, we can't yet step out of it. It's almost easier not to know that we were doing it in the first place. And yet, as we start to see it, that's how we learn. That's how it transforms. And interestingly, the Buddha observed with regard to this, and in a way that's counterintuitive to those of us, probably many of us, raised in sort of the traditional Western philosophical, ethical thinking about morality, where the Buddha's understanding was that if we do something unskillful, with awareness that it's unskillful, this is actually better than doing something unskillful with having no idea that it's unskillful. Now, if we think about that from our traditional Western and Judeo-Christianic moral positioning, it's sort of like, no, that doesn't work. It doesn't make sense to us. In fact, our legal system says, if you do something really harmful and didn't even realise it, we don't regard that as culpable. And if you do something harmful but you did know you were doing it, that's, that's something we're going to, you know, we're going to sort of uh, punish you for, we could say, or, or need to sort you out with regard to. So from the Buddha's point of view, it's not about making a moral statement about a person being good or bad. Understanding an action as unskillful is actually closer to transforming it than when we don't understand it's unskillful. Huh? Can you see how that might be so? Like, if we don't have any idea that it's harmful, then of course we're just going to keep doing it. If we understand that it's harmful, we might not yet understand what it is that compels us to do it. And this is often what we need to understand. What it is that we get out of that? And we start to see that by being present with the experience as it unfolds, uncomfortable and even embarrassing as it is. It seems embarrassing sometimes for us to see what goes on in us. I sometimes wonder what it would be like for us and invite sometimes we could contemplate. How would it be 
if our thoughts were being broadcast on the wall? <laughs> How would that be for us? I mean, like... <laughs> I remember talking with Joseph Goldstein once. We were talking about the nature of this role as Dharma teachers and uh, it was a a sweet conversation. At one point he observed, and I think he said this publicly before as well, so I'm not sharing any private confidences here. Joseph, he said, "Um, you know, if my students knew what I was thinking while I was sitting at the front here, they wouldn't come on my retreats. And Joseph was probably the most respected teacher and senior elder in our tradition. So there's a process that takes place here. And it's uncomfortable to see what's true. Sometimes, often in fact. It's also at times beautiful, touching and liberating. But it can be uncomfortable. And it takes time. There's a poem that describes the process so precisely that it's... Anyway, I won't say what it is. I'll tell you the poem. It seems to me, at least, to be just, this is what happens for us. And it happens in retreat. It happens in life. And it's how we learn things. And it goes like this. It's by Portia Nelson, and it's entitled An Autobiography in Five Short Chapters. And uh, it refers to what in America is called a sidewalk, which here is called a pavement. In New Zealand we call it a footpath. I tend to try and translate it into the country I'm in. So I'll call it a pavement. That's the bit beside the road that people walk on. You've got that, right? But there's some of you here that might not be from uh, any of those three countries, and there might be a different word in your country. So I'm just uh, bearing that in mind. So it goes like this. Chapter 1. I walk down the street. There is a large hole in the pavement. I don't see it. I don't know it's there. I fall in. I don't know where I am or what has happened. It takes me a long time to get out. Chapter 2. I walk down the same street. There is a large hole in the pavement. I pretend I don't see it. I fall in. I don't know where I am or what has happened. And it's not my fault. It takes me a long time to get out. Chapter 3. I walk down the same street. There's a large hole in the pavement. I see it. I know it's there. I've fallen anyway. It's a habit. (laughs) This time I know exactly where I am and what has happened. And it is my fault. My responsibility, I would say. Just translating a little bit here. It's my responsibility. I get out straight away. Chapter 4. I walk down the same street. There's a large hole in the pavement. I walk carefully around it. And chapter 5. I walk down a different street. (laughs) And sometimes in chapter 2 and 3, and there can be more than five chapters to our own story, when we realise that it's not that we've never seen it coming anymore, but yet we don't quite know how to not fall in. That it's really important to be gentle and kind with ourselves in this. It takes time to learn. 
And we can give ourselves the space we need for the learning. And we have to give ourselves this. If we don't, the whole thing becomes way too tight. And so, what would it be to just imagine that we could take the time we needed for this journey? I think a lovely observation we can reflect on is a a story of... uh, a student of Tibetan Buddhism who had the opportunity to meet with His Holiness the Dalai Lama and uh, have a brief audience with him. And he was very excited and happy and pleased for this opportunity. And he came along to His Holiness and he described, he said, now I've been practicing for 20 years and I've been developing this meditation and that meditation. But you know, and he talked about these difficulties and his struggles and the problems and how he couldn't do it. And, and he was kind of hoping that His Holiness would tell him how to resolve it and fix it so he could move on and it would all be okay afterwards. You know, and I was really struggling and His Holiness listened and he looked very compassionately. He said when the man had finished, he said, you know, It's really difficult, isn't it? I can hear that, yeah. And you know, it's like that in the early years of practice. (laughs) If 20 years is the early years, it's all right, you know? It's really okay where we are by now. So we practice, sitting and walking and standing and being here and meeting our experience and sometimes getting lost in it, sometimes falling into it a long way, but finding our way back up and out again and again, sometimes tiptoeing carefully around the dangerous places or the tricky places. Sometimes we find a new street, of course, but We don't know where the holes on that street might be. But what we start to see is that this is what we're all doing. That there's a a sharedness to this experience. That we all experience this. And we've spoken about this and pointed to this. And, you know, this is the thing the Buddha described as the, the first ennobling truth. There is suffering, there is dukkha, there is that in life which is hard to bear. We've named that, we've said that, we've spoken about that. And yet, it's like somehow in life we can go around maintaining a mutual story or a shared view that somehow all of that shouldn't really have happened. It's not really okay or allowed that this is our experience. And I know for myself, and I've heard it many, many times from many people, the, the immense relief in hearing that, oh yeah, there is this that we call suffering, or dukkha, the Buddha's word. Somehow, when one gets to know the word, it somehow works better than any other kind of word that isn't quite that. But it might mean not so much for another as it does for myself. But this, this, oh yeah, there is that. You know, the Buddha talked about birth, aging, sickness, death, 
that this body goes through and all bodies go through. He talked about sorrow, pain, lamentation, grief and despair. What hearts go through. Human hearts go through this. He talked about being separated from what we like. Being associated with what we don't like. And not getting what we want. And how our mind does not like that. And we all have minds that experience this. And yet somehow the the story that's presented and projected to us is that somehow if we'd got it right, this wouldn't have happened. If we'd got it right, like the people in the squeaky clean advertisement who were really happy with their new Jif cleaning liquid, or whatever it might be, no harsh scratching, And it's like somehow it leaves us with a sense that I did it wrong. That it's my fault. Because it shouldn't have been this way. There is no human life that happens without these dimensions within it. And there's a simple way that perhaps I could, I find useful to illustrate this. To make it kind of something we can't contend with, maybe, so much. Just for our hearts, you know, saying, okay, if we can live with birth and ageing, sickness and death, bodies go through that, yeah. But what is it for our hearts? This is often where it's hardest, I think. You know, if we love something in life, someone, something, some place, anyone, anything, any place, whatever it is that we might love in life and that we do love in life, one day we'll be parted from that through accident, through choice, through death. And it will hurt. It will be deeply grievous and painful to be separated from what we love. And you know, if we don't love something or someone in life, It will be deeply painful to not love something. That too is deeply painful to our hearts. Can you see how there isn't a third option? Either we love and we feel loss and grief, which is just the experience of that love and the absence or separation from what we love. And if we don't love, we'll feel the grief of the heart's wish to love, not finding its expression. It's nature and movement and the very core of us not having found a way to flower in the world. And either of these two things will hurt. So the fact that in our life it hurts, whether this way or that way, it's not our fault. It's how it is. To really understand that. To really let it in. I don't know if you saw or remember the scene in Goodwill Hunting where Matt Damon's character, who's a, essentially a, a very bright but angry, mixed-up young man, finally comes into contact with his vulnerability and his, his frustration and his pain. And the, the character of his mentor, played by Robin Williams, is saying to him, it's not your fault. And what happens if we let that in? It's not your fault. 
And of course our minds say, I, I know, yeah, sure, I've heard that, yeah, I understand. But, you know, that's not the bit that needs to hear this. It's not your fault. This is how it is for us all. And the sense of what happens when we fail to understand that is that we become separated and isolated by that which is painful, hard and difficult to bear. Our sense of self and separateness is so much configured around the sense of being different than. And that founded on a belief that it's only me who experiences this difficulty, this dirt. Even if in our mind we know that's not true, something in us doesn't necessarily get that. And perhaps we have done things about which we feel sorrow, remorse and regret. It's important if this is so, and it's true for us all, that we contemplate, that we reflect upon these things. Perhaps it's been times when we caused harm to another. Or perhaps it's times when we harmed ourselves. Or when we didn't take care of another. Or when we didn't take care of ourselves, as we would have wished to be able to. If we look carefully at this, I think we'll see, and this is something I've done for myself and I have cause to do so regularly again and time again in my life, what we will see is that where we've done things that we regret, feel sorrowful or remorse about, it's been coming. And certainly for myself, it's when I'm in pain or in fear of the pain. Or when I'm feeling needy, like I must have and I want and I've got to have, that I can disregard another person or I can act in such a way as to hurt someone else. It's out of our pain and the not yet fully developed capacity to meet it that we act in ways that cause harm to others. And this is true for us all. This is true for us all. And it's so important that we forgive ourselves. Truly and deeply forgive ourselves for our own blindness and for our misguided, scrambling attempts to take care of our own need, our own hunger, our own well-being in ways that have sometimes impacted others All the ways in which through our own not yet fully developed capacities we've been unable to take care of ourselves or others we would have wished to take care of. So there's a story. Well, it's not really a story. It's an image that I've found really helpful for myself to describe or to kind of reference this process and I often like to share it. So I'd just like to invite you to imagine to just, if you would, kind of bring to mind the image of the story I'm describing. If one were to go for a walk in the woods 
and walking come across a small puppy, reaching out to stroke the creature, to be friendly, and it bites one hard into the palm of your hand, like, ah, it hurt. What? Just imagining, what's your reaction here? Like, bad dog, I'll, you know, spit in my hand, I'll teach you a lesson, and bite human beings. Even, you know, if we think we're going to do it for its own good, you know, but that anger or that judgment or that rage might come. And then as we look and we see that this puppy who's bitten our hand, we suddenly realise that its foot is caught in one of those spring-loaded traps with jaws that catch small creatures in the woods sometimes. Just notice then in that moment, what would our response be? To having been bitten by this puppy. We wouldn't be thinking, I don't imagine, any of us, bad dog, I'll teach you a lesson We wouldn't be swearing at it or wanting to strike it for a moment once we saw its foot was in the trap. Sure, we'd be wanting to still get our hand out of its mouth, but then we'd want to somehow find a way to help this creature. And perhaps we might want to have a word to anyone who has been putting traps in the woods, and that might be appropriate too. But to see... The puppy wasn't trying to hurt us. It was afraid. It was in pain. It was actually in a tragic way desperately seeking for help by biting us. Sometimes we're that puppy. Sometimes we have bitten equally as we have been bitten in life. We have hurt as we have been hurt. It happens for us all. So imagine in this sort of story or scenario I'm describing that now it's some significant time later and you've all forgotten about the first puppy incident, all sort of passed by and things are okay. You're going for a walk in the woods and it's autumn and you see a puppy and liking puppies, you reach out, the puppy bites you. And you look at the puppy and you see that it's up to its shoulders and leaves. You can't see its feet. Its legs are invisible to you. What would it require for you to understand or to know, in fact, that the puppy's foot was in a trap? Even though you couldn't see its feet. It seems to me it would require that we would understand that it's not the nature of puppies to want to bite and harm human beings or other beings. And that even if we can't see the trap on its foot, we could know it's behaving like this. It's clearly afraid and in pain. And in ourselves, we might not always be able to see what it is that was hurting us, that led us to act in the way we regretted. But if we look carefully, I'm confident that we will find in time that it was pain that we were acting from. That the essential nature of what we are does not wish to cause harm to others. 
or to ourselves in any way. But sometimes in the attempt to protect ourselves or what we care about, we nonetheless do. And this plays out in the world in so many ways, so tragically. So there's a, a process of forgiveness with regard to pain in this world that we are asked to embark upon. Forgiving ourselves, forgiving this world. That doesn't mean we don't take steps to appropriately protect ourselves and protect others where needed from such harm as we're able to protect them from and to address those things which are not skillful or wholesome. And we do need to, in this world, undertake that. And uh, Leela's lovely image of Vashrapani uh, is an appropriate way to kind of understand the, really the divine quality of that fierce protection. But starting to soften into and through that sense of somehow the blame or the closing down to oneself or another, the, unf- the perception of the unforgivableness of beings, or in this case, most importantly, ourselves, we can start to open up to the fact that this is going on for us all. And that this is something we share as human beings. This struggle with the blindness. When we judge or when we blame, we feel distant from and cut off from. When we allow ourselves to feel the resonant capacity of the human heart-mind that is sensitive, that feels. The very feeling capacity is something that begins to dissolve and cut through that sense of separateness. And although it can feel more than we are easily able to bear at times, It's the medicine that we're called on to allow to work upon us. And sometimes what can happen in this context is remarkable. It's a story to read. It's a true story from a hospice in America. Hazel came into the hospital in a very contracted state. The nurses called her a real bitch on wheels. Few wished to spend time with her. All her life had been a struggle for control. All she did not want, could not have, was judged and pushed away from her heart. All that she could get was grasped at feverishly. And so she found herself dying alone in a great deal of pain. She had judged so many, so much, so often that even her grown children would not visit. For six weeks her isolation and pain increased until one night she came to a point where she could no longer stand the suffering in her back and legs or the pain of her unlived life. And feeling like jumping out of her skin, she began to review her life amidst the pulsations of her pain. 
never had it been so clear how her intense holding had created such intense pain. Feeling death approach, she remembered herself as a young woman, open and hungry for the world. She saw how she had closed down over the years. With a sigh, she let the helplessness wash over her, and exhausted, unable to fight another moment, she surrendered, let go, and died into her life, into the moment. Letting go into the pain in her spine and legs, she began to sense, quite beyond reason, that she was somehow not alone in her suffering. She felt what she later called the 10,000 in pain. She began to experience all the other beings who at that very moment were lying in that same bed of agony. At first there arose the experience of herself as a brown-skinned woman, breasts slack from malnutrition, lying on her side, a starving child suckling at her empty breast her spine and legs twisted in pain. For an instant she became this Ethiopian woman, dying in the mud. Then there arose the experience of herself as an Inuit Eskimo woman, lying on her side, dying during childbirth, tremendous pain in her back, hips and legs, and dying the same death. Image after image arose, she was each, dying beside the others. She experienced the 10,000 sufferings simultaneously. She said, The pain was beyond my bearing. I couldn't stand it any longer. And something broke. Maybe it was my heart. But I saw it wasn't just my pain. It was the pain. It wasn't just my life. It was all of life. It was life itself. And as the days unfolded after this extraordinary experience, Hazel's heart opened more and more to all the others in pain at the hospital. She asked after them constantly and the room became a place where the nurses would come because it was a room of love. Soon her children came to visit because of the warmth and surrender of her phone calls, responding to her plea for forgiveness. Her grandchildren sat on her bed. The grandchildren she had never met. The hearts she had rejected before they were born. For several weeks before her death, Hazel's room became a place of healing, of finished business, of universal care. To understand that that which is the hardest for us to bear is actually the gateway that shows us what we have in common. This sensitive heart and this life that just doesn't work out the way we might have wished it to be. Certainly not all of the time. We are not alone in this. We are profoundly and deeply connected. 
and to see that this life is something miraculous, that it happens at all, that this heart still beats in the midst of all of this, that this body continues despite its challenges and limitations. This that we're asked to hold, that is our life, is not our life. We're asked to hold it, nonetheless. But to hold it gently and allow it to move. To see that it's all of life that we have a window into. And our window has its own particular shape. It's very particular configuration. All windows are like that. But it's a window into life. We are not standing outside of life looking at a window. We are actually life passing through that window. And its shape is particular. But its nature is fluid alive and that movement we can come to find peace with in the prophet Khalil Gibran writes he says if you could keep your heart in wonder at the daily miracle of your life your pain would not seem less wondrous than your joy. And you would accept the seasons of your heart just as you have always accepted the seasons that pass over your land. And I find this such a a beautiful image, the seasons of our heart, to understand that yes, we go through sometimes hard places. And of course, we would wish to live in summer and sunshine and the luxuriance and warmth and expansion. But this is not how it is in the world. And we might at times think that the winter will be forever. But it cannot be so. That spring, this freshness of new growth, comes out of that dying back that can be so painful. And that spring that comes into the fullness of summer, lovely as it is, cannot sustain but must fade into autumn. Die back into winter and out of that, cold or arid as it may be, new life comes again and again. And again, unstoppably. These seasons move. But what is it to keep our heart in wonder at all this? As we practice together, it's not just those places of tenderness that we're touched by. It's not just that we encounter this 
at times deep well of sorrow or rawness or grief. But equally we touch into our capacity for the joy of life, for sweetness. And some of you speaking as you have been with us, of your experience of meeting something and feeling how in that meeting, whether it be just a momentary contact with a small creature on the path or standing with one of the trees or looking at an open view, that something in us is touched that goes right into the very core of us. That the very sense of that which feels to be most intimate within us can be touched. That something can resonate in here from what appears to be out there. It's speaking to us of the window that we are, that life moves through and touches us in that sweetness, equally at times in the tenderness that for me that may hurt and cause us to shrink at times. And yet we're learning this practice of seeing the tendency of tightening, contracting, hardening, narrowing. Seeing we have this capacity to soften, to widen, to open, to expand into life. Expand through and beyond the apparent boundary of the window through which we see it. That gives it a particular shape, a particular flavor, a particular color. Because sometimes our windows have colors in them and it looks a certain way. But that's just the window we're looking through. It's not actually, ultimately, the way it is. This awareness that we're exploring, this openness that we're deepening into. The sweetness and the poignancy that can both sometimes seem more than we can bear. Because sometimes it's not just the difficult that's hard to bear, it's hard equally to bear the sweetness of the depth of love in our hearts. And the longing for our happiness. These come to rest, come to resolution. Come to peace, we could say, in the stillness, in the silence that is not moving nor still. The silence that we're in, that we start to feel in and through. All things. What is this that we settle into in those moments when we're just here? With whatever is here, wholeheartedly, unconditionally. What is this that we rest in? That something in us knows so deeply and yet meets as if for the first time. The marker of what is true and most true is that it's familiar to us 
even though it's completely new, completely fresh. It's never something we come back to. And yet in discovering it, we recognize it. How can that be? That we recognize something we've never met before. How can that be? Except that something in us knows it. Because something in us is that. Not apart from that. Not looking at it. But completely indistinguishable from it. To know this, we have to allow everything in. To know this, we have to allow everything in and yet know that all that we allow in is just what moves, is what flows, is what forms and shapes the seasons of our heart and our life and this world and yet does not confine it or define it. And there's a silence that we long for. That doesn't mean the sounds have to go away. There's a stillness that we long for that doesn't mean all the activity has to stop. And it's not far away from us. In fact, what we do here isn't to get closer to it. Because we can't get any closer than we already are. And likewise, what we've done that we might regret hasn't taken us further away. Because we can't leave any more than a fish can swim out of the water. Thomas Merton says the reality that is present to us and in us call it being silence and the simple fact that by being attentive by learning to listen or recovering the natural capacity to listen we can find ourselves engulfed in such happiness that it cannot be explained the happiness of being at one with everything in that hidden ground of care for which there can be no explanations. May we all grow in grace and peace and not neglect the silence that is printed in the centre of our being. It will not fail us.
may we all, in our practice here together and in our lives, may we be freed from the blindness that limits our capacity to see the deep love that is at the core of our being. And may we come to rest deeply in that loving goodness and equally in the silence and the stillness through which it moves. At the very heart of our being, at the very heart of all life. For our own welfare and for the welfare of all beings. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.